The Irish Times Books Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's ethically sourced cocoa for a delicious chocolate taste. This is the Irish Times Books Podcast with me, Martin Doyle. On this podcast, I talk to Ireland's children's laureate, Sarah Crossan. Sarah has written several novels for young adults, including The Weight of Water and Apple and Rain, which were both shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal, which she went on to win in 2016 with the verse novel One. We discuss her latest young adult novel, Toffee. Toffee is a novel written in verse about a teenager who runs away from an abusive home and befriends an elderly woman. We also chat about her career, her work as laureate, and her identity as an Irish person growing up and living in Britain. Um, Sarah, uh, welcome to the Irish Times. Um, congratulations on the, the launch of your, your new novel, uh, Toffee. Could we go right back to the beginning and speak a little bit about how you became an author? I think, ironically enough, for a writer for children, it was actually a sort of a child who, mm. uh, who sort of laid down the gauntlet for you to actually become a writer. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was, um, I was an English teacher for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I was doing one of those lessons about live your dreams, which I hope most teachers do at some mm-hmm. point. You can be anything you want to be. Just go out there and make it happen. And a child said to me, have you always wanted to be a teacher? And the subtext to that was, you're a terrible teacher. <laughs> Why are you doing this job? <laughs> and I said, no, um, I also would like to be a writer. And I sort of made some excuses about why it had never happened. And he said, well, you have a bit of a cheek telling us to live our dreams if you've never really gone and tried to do the thing you love yourself. Um, and that really did propel me. I, it, was on, it was because of that conversation that I applied to do a master's in creative writing and I went off and I, I did that at Warwick University. And from that point onwards, really did everything I could to hone the craft and be a creator. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was someone sort of reminding me that I needed to sort of um, practice what I preach, really. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Yeah. And what about teaching itself as a as a kind of a prelude to 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 writing um, mm. children's books? Was that helpful and kind of? Well, yeah, because when I did the masters, I was writing short stories, literary short stories for adults, and then of course the natural thing was to try and write a novel for adults. And I was working and working on that book, and it was a book set in County Meath in Oldcastle, where my mum is from, and it just didn't come together. There was nothing about the book that felt right, and. Then I was teaching a book called Out of the Dust by Karen Hess, which is a verse novel. And I had this kind of idea for a character and the two things came together and I ended up starting to write a children's book. And of course, it was the natural thing to do. I think by then I had been teaching maybe eight years. Um, And as soon as I started to write, the voice was, it felt natural and the process was really organic and that book, I think I finished in about six weeks, got an agent immediately, and you know, and then the rest is history, really. So I'd slogged away at this adult book for 10 years that hadn't worked, and I knew it wasn't working. I never submitted it. I never tried to find an agent. Mm-hmm. I never showed anybody the work because I knew that mm-hmm. there was something that wasn't right about it. It's funny because I read somewhere that it had something to do with a castle, and then when I, yeah. I, I read elsewhere that your favourite bit of writing was, I think, from The Weight of Water, and it was about Ke- a poem about Kenilworth Castle. Yeah. Is there any connection there at all? Or Not really, you just no. like castles? Yeah, well, it, I think that somebody misquoted because they said that I was writing an adult book about a castle, but it wasn't. It, it was, was about, about Old, old Castle. castle. Okay. <laughs> so I think it was a, a phone interview or something. I didn't yeah. want to correct the person. I was sure. fine. This, <laughs> it's this, not published yeah. anyway, so it's okay. This is how mistakes spread like wildfire. <laughs> 
we've stopped that in its tracks now. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more. Do you think you're either a, a writer for children or a writer for adults, or do you, do you think mm. is there a divide or not in your in your view? I don't know. I find it a difficult question to answer because I'm not offended by the idea that I'm a children's writer. I'm really proud to be a children's writer. Obviously, I'm the Laureate Anogue, mm -hmm. so I represent children's writing in a lot of ways. Um, and I, but I think that the that kind of prejudice comes from people who don't know what children's writing looks like. And a lot of children's writing, I think, crosses over even things like picture books. Mm -hmm. My daughter is six, so she'll read picture books and chapter books. Um, but there are so many picture books that I think adults would read on a different level and love for different reasons. Um, and I hope my books do that, that they, they do cross over. But I think that the, an adult reading a book, reading one of my books, will see something different to the child reading the book. So I, th I think, for example, with Toffee, where you have an older woman and then a teenager, the focus may be for the adult reader on the older woman and that relationship that she has with her son and with her daughter, who we never see. And then the, the teenage reader will focus on Toffee and her relationship with her father um, and her stepmother. Tell us a bit about um, becoming Laureate Nanogue. Like I think it was um, one of the things that made it so important for you was the fact that, um, as it says on your Twitter bio, um, Irish author, Irish writer, English accent, the, mm. the fact that, you know, you've lived um, a lot of your life abroad, whatever, in terms of maybe questions of identity or whatever. Mm. Um, would you like to sort of say a little bit about that or...? It's something that I, you know, when I lived in the States, I would say, people would say, where are you from? And I'd say, I'm Irish, but I lived in England. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of the conversation because New York was such a melting pot and you could be anything that you decided to be. And there mm -hmm. was no conflict between those two things. But Perfect. I feel that yeah. when I'm here and when I'm in the UK, it's sort of like pick a side, like who are you and, and how do you mm -hmm. identify? Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I've only ever identified as Irish. Mm -hmm. And it's been really important to me to be accepted here as an Irish person. And sometimes that's been difficult, especially being in the role of Laureate Nanogue, that often people will say, oh, but you sound English. Oh, and you live there. And so can you, you know, and the implication with those mm -hmm. questions is, can you can justify your position and why you're entitled to this role? But for me, I think, mm -hmm. well, if I don't belong here, then I don't really know where else I belong sure. because politically, you know, culturally, that's mm -hmm. how I've grown up. You know, my dad is from the north and... Um, you know, I was just, I was raised within a particular culture. Mm -hmm. I wonder, is it almost the flip side of, say, children born here, black children are from, you know, some other different ethnic background, but mm. they, they have got a, an Irish accent. And mm. again, people want to know where you, where are you from, where are you really from sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. has that maybe helped you in terms of um, some of your work in terms of connecting with people who say the description New Irish or whatever in terms of an identity that is more complex? Well, I just think in terms of being the laureate Nanogue, I'm meeting all different types of children. Mm -hmm. um, and I accept that all these children are Irish children. I don't ever... And they, they may not look like your typical Irish mm -hmm. child, mm -hmm. but I just accept that all these children are Irish children mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. al you know allow them to have the identities they want to have and they describe themselves in whatever way they want to describe themselves. Mm -hmm. I think the difficulty for me is when other people want to tell me who I am. Um, or, you know, just like jokes are made, you know, you know um, and there's sort of the plastic paddy jokes that are made that I don't find very funny and at the beginning may have been polite about 
It's, it, an, it's an incredibly offensive term, actually. Like, yeah. I, like, you know, I worked for the Irish Post for nine years in London, and the first time I heard it, I kind of found found it appalling, really, that, you know, even people, English, Irish people living in England with English-born kids would mm-hmm. use that phrase, and I was kind of thinking... You know, it's almost like do other nationalities sort of be so disparaging of their, you know, of their diaspora that mm-hmm. they kind of treat them as not sort of second generation, but as sort of second rate in some high. Yeah. And I, and I find it funny, like when I'm here and people might make that comment and I think, well, isn't it lovely that your family were able to stay here? Like the reason that my family moved to the UK, mm-hmm. they weren't, for, you know, my dad wasn't going for a promotion. You know, we were moving because yeah. we needed to have a different life. Mm-hmm. And so... That term implies that we've gone. I've gone somewhere of my own accord to have something, you know, better. But it was only better because it was there was nothing here. Yeah. You know, there were no jobs. There, there was no way that my family could sustain a life here. And how I wish that we hadn't had to leave. How I wish that we could still be living in Church Town. You know, um, how much that house would be worth. <laughs> If they hadn't had to give it up, <laughs> um, but you know, a very, so it, it's a, a very that kind Irish of, concern. but that um, middle class idea that oh, you're actually British. Well, I, we had to leave. Mm-hmm. Like it's nice for you that you got to stay. Yeah, um, and that fed into your work. Um, for example, your your sorry is your debut novel, The Weight of Yeah, Weight of Water, that's my debut. Yeah. And it was about a Polish girl coming to Coventry and um, being bullied as an outsider, mm. and yet in retrospect you saw that actually sort of was a way of you telling your own story? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was funny when that book was bought was bought by Bloomsbury and they, they said, oh, <laughs> what a wonderful um, way of exploring immigration. I thought this isn't a book about immigration, it's a book about bullying. Mm. And, but of course it's a book about immigration and it's a book about the difficulties that I had when I first moved to the UK and you know at that time there was a lot of bombing going on with the IRA and and stuff like that and so it wasn't pleasant and I first thing I did was got rid of my accent so you know that in my bio Mm -hmm. Irish Irish writer English accent well I didn't really have a choice I didn't feel it was and being a white person it was very easy to assimilate Mm -hmm. all I had to do was get rid of my accent that was the only thing that I needed Mm -hmm. to do Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so I think that book is in many ways about me but all the books are about me I think you know I just very thinly veiled um, ways of just exploring different things in my life. So one, it's a book about conjoined twins. How could that ever be about me? But that's, I wrote that when my daughter was just born Mm -hmm. and I was so attached to her physically and this physical attachment was something I was able to explore by writing a book about conjoined twins. You know, the pain you feel when you leave someone who you love. And you were speaking as well about uh, Moonrise, a book about mm. uh, death row. Mm. And that wasn't just about the death penalty. That was about how you say goodbye to someone. Yeah. And again, maybe that sort of feeds into, you know, maybe another prejudice about YA fiction, that it all it always has to be about something. Well, mm. every book is about something, but maybe it, there always has to be an issue. Yeah. Whereas I think you would say, or you've said in the past, that your books are about people and uh, mm. their experiences. How would you put that in your in your own words? Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've said it quite eloquently that I I don't write issue books. My books are about character and my books are about people and relationships and how we find love and belonging. I think that's the thing that we're all searching for. And so every book really is about that. And when I started to write Moonrise, I was really interested in the idea of the death penalty. I had seen a documentary called 14 Days in May when I was a teenager. And I remember 
when I saw that documentary, the family saying goodbye to Edward L. Johnson, who was the person on death row, and wondered about what had happened to that family. And I was trying to create a story. But when I finished my first draft, it was an issues book. It was me doing a number on the reader and saying, isn't this an awful thing? And isn't the criminal justice system in the States terrible? And that's not really interesting for anybody. Um, and my editor asked me to try again, and I tried again. It still wasn't working, and then I tried again. And it was only when I really allowed myself to understand why this was the book that I had to write at the time that I said, okay, this is a book about saying goodbye to somebody that you love and how, you know, you can have this relationship through plexiglass and, um, you know, what's wrong with that relationship and how do you end that relationship? And so, yeah, it was when I realised the book was really about me, which they all are. <laughs> <laughs> Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish. Made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa, Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. One of the striking things, sometimes when you sort of read the headlines and it's all prizes and success, mm. and that's obviously all great, but then when you sort of maybe dig a little deeper and you read that you spent eight years on one book or you had to, like you said there, you had to sort of stop halfway through writing a book and go right back to the beginning mm. or maybe to go from writing it in, in prose to writing it in, in verse. Mm. You know, it's, it can be quite a slog. Um, yeah. It's as much about sort of sweat and sacrifice and setbacks as it is about um, success and prizes. Mm. Um, could you speak a little bit about the, the challenge, the hard graft um, of being a writer? I mean, I think that's just all it is. For me, it's just 80% sitting at a desk on my own for hours and hours and the drudgery of it, you know, there's, um, I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy the process, but I would prefer to be at the cinema some days, mm -hmm. you know, I'd prefer to be out for a run. Um, so, yeah, a lot of it is difficult, but yeah, I learned very quickly to enjoy the process because The Weight of Water, I was so lucky with that book, that was shortlisted for the Carnegie. So that was my debut that had moderate success and I realised that oh happiness only really comes in your own life from your relationships it can't really come from prizes because you win a prize and then you're making dinner and you're mm. hanging laundry and ordinary life continues um, and it's all you know I think especially things like social media it really is smoke and mirrors people will see me and say oh everything seems so great you know mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. seem so happy and you're so successful and you say well my work is going well but mm. you know the other parts of my life I'm working at like everybody's working at sure. you know but there must be some satisfaction or pleasure from when you experience flow as a writer, surely, mm. that there must be times when you're sitting at your desk where, you know, it really is going well and there is a buzz. I think when you, yeah, when the, there can be a point where you're writing and maybe it's about a third of the way through that you think, oh, this is a book. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a book. And I think I know what this book is about for me. And that's really exciting. And it's also exciting just pressing send and sending it to my editor and knowing that I've done this thing, whether it's going to be published or not, I mm -hmm. have created this thing. Um, I can't remember who it was that said, um, I don't like writing, but I like having written or something like that. I can't remember who it was, but I do feel a little bit like that. You know, at the end of the day, when I have a thousand words written or I have 17 good words written, I'm pleased. Um, but in the middle of it, I, I'm looking outside at the fox in the garden and thinking, oh, to be the fox. <laughs> T 
tell me then about your new book, um, Toffee. It was inspired by um, the first book that you fell in love with um, as a reader yourself. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so I think I was about 13 and I was in school and we read The Pig Man by Paul Zindel. I have to say I haven't reread that book since then and I certainly didn't want to reread it before I wrote Toffee, but I just remember that the book was about two teenagers who befriended an old man and the book made me cry and the book made me realise that books had that power to move you in that way and have that kind of emotional impact on you. So that book never left me and I became a, a voracious reader after that experience. Um, and so I suppose it was that and also I had written a book called Apple and Rain. I think that was published in 2014-ish, <laughs> around then. And that's a book about a girl who lives with her grandmother. And I feel like I wasn't finished writing about relationships between older people and younger people. Um, and I wanted to write a book about a friendship between an older woman and a younger person. And then the idea of this character called Toffee came to me. So that's really where it started. It started with Toffee. And I thought, okay, so she's sweet and she's hard and you know, why is she this way? Why does to why does the name Toffee suit her? Um, and then it kind of grew outwards from there. So I sort of started with Toffee, I suppose. Okay, lovely. Maybe, is this a good point to, would you like to read the yeah, sure. um, passage? Okay. So this is a poem called I Am Toffee. I tell Marla my real name twice. Alison, Alison. And she uses it for a while, not looking at me, then continues to call me Toffee. She thinks that's who I am, so I stop correcting her, and anyway, I like the idea of being sweet and hard, a girl with a name for people to chew on, a girl who could break teeth. Lovely. Thanks very much. So Toffee um, is about Alison, or Toffee, as she becomes known, and she's run away from home, and... Um, she initially um, moves into the shed at the bottom of Marla's garden mm. and then realises that it's not a deserted house. Someone actually lives there and sort of gradually sort of um, a relationship between the two develops. Would you, sorry, would you like to, <laughs> me having told the story, would you like to um, um, say it in your own words? Um, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the 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 beginning and, ha and how she connects with Marla. She's run away from home and we don't really find out until near the end of the novel what's happened, what the catalyst has been. We understand that she has a difficult relationship with her father and that her father's girlfriend uh, ran away um, because of violence in the home. And she's she she takes a bus to a place called Bude in um, Cornwall, a place that I love very much. And Kellyanne, who is her father's girlfriend, isn't there and she expects her to be there. So she has to find somewhere to stay. So she stays in this shed of this old woman. Um, and the old woman invites her in and uses the name Toffee. And the girl thinks that she's inviting her in for Toffee, you know, to have some Toffee. So she approaches the older woman and then she realises that um, Marla is suffering from dementia and begins by thinking she can manipulate her, begins by thinking... I can use this situation to have somewhere to stay. And she's used to manipulating. She's used to finding ways around people. Um, but, of course, when she sees Marla's vulnerability and Marla sees her, not just her vulnerabilities, but sees her as this whole person who is enough, love starts to grow. And, um, yeah, the, then there becomes this intimacy between these two characters, these two characters who are supposed to abused in their own ways and marginalized in their own ways they can have a friendship that is ordinary and is based on a 
equality, I suppose, which neither of them have had in a very long time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me um, a little bit then about the the form, uh, the novel and verse. Like, I think you were saying the difference between a verse novelist and a poet is that um, the the story is king for the mm. verse novelist. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Um, well, I think that for me, pacing is really important and making sure that the reader wants to turn the pages is really important. That's the key to creating a novel I think that you want to keep turning the pages I can read a collection of poems and I can read one or two poems and go back and forth and it doesn't matter the order in which I read them mm -hmm. um, and I write a lot that doesn't ever make it into the book because I write a lot that is for me and is quite flowery and is my attempt to play with language and is me showing off with language and then when I go back and edit I realize that it really is not pushing the plot forward or it isn't really um, doing any more to reveal character. So those bits I take out. Mm. Um, but I, I think that some of the poems are standalone and some of the poems you could read without reading the entire book. But ultimately, for me, every poem pushes through to the next mm -hmm, and links mm -hmm. to the next poem. So plot is, of course, important. But you'd always kind of think with poetry that the language um, mm. comes first, that the language almost has, has primacy over plot her character. Well, so. yeah, I mean, yeah, so there's two sides to it. So mm. when I am doing the writing, if I'm writing in prose, I can bang out a thousand words a day and then go back and edit them. And maybe I only keep 300, but I can write a number of words and maybe use them. But when I write in verse, I might spend the whole day writing and I might write one poem, I write, might write 15 and never use them. Mm -hmm. Because as you say, language is so important that unless I have the voice, unless the rhythm is right, that it that they have to go because it is both of those things. It's a balancing act between the two. And so what I'll do is I'll say, right, this is the key point in this poem or this is the plot point in this poem, but then it has to be beautiful as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the difficulty in writing in verse, that it do does come to me in a sort of a weird way that I can't always be in total control of how, f how quickly the process, you know, how fast the process is. Sure. It struck me a little bit as well, I don't know if it's completely random, but um, is there a comparison with writing for screen? Like, you know, that each poem could almost be like a sort of a, a scene in a in a screenplay or something? Yeah, I do think of it like that. So I think of when I write in prose that it's like, a, well, maybe not quite like that, but it's like a film. Mm. But when I write in verse that it's like photographs that are threaded together to create sort of like a flick, you know, mm -hmm. a flick book, mm -hmm. like a, a photo story or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. Often people say writing is rewriting, but there is a sense as well that, you know, writing is all about the editing um, and pairing stuff back to, to its essence or whatever. Could you say a little bit about that then? I suppose that's something that you've touched on already, that, you know, a lot of, you know, what you write mm. is almost you're writing for yourself and it's not going to, you know, to make the final draft, but maybe it helps you make sense of the story as you go along? Yeah, for me, editing, you know, the delete button is the most important button mm. on my keyboard. I I pair back and pair back, and especially with poetry, you're sort of taking out conjunctions that you don't need. You know, you, you, I tend to put in a lot more flabby language that I need, and so it is really a process of cutting. Um, and I can start with a verse novel that might be 50,000 words, but by the time it, get, it, it gets to the shops, it's... 28,000. Even by the time it gets to the editor, I do a lot of that myself. 
the editor will generally be asking me to add things. Um, and I might be adding things that I'd already taken away myself or I might be adding things because she's had a new brilliant idea. I do have a fantastic editor mm -hmm. who really understands what I'm trying to do. Um, but I'm really aware myself of my readers and a lot of my readers, you know, as you say, I have some adult readers, but a lot of my readers are teenagers. I'm competing w with a lot of other things for their time and I don't want to waste their time. Mm -hmm. So I really try to make sure that every poem gets to the emotional heart of the story. Um, and, yeah, so deleting is the most important thing, most important part of my job, I feel. Coming, coming back to um, your role as Laurie Nanog, I just wondered, you know, say if your kids um, just aren't into reading, um, mm. not yours because I know that yours no, no, is no. a dedicated <laughs> reader, um, but say if they're getting their fix from... Netflix or YouTube, how would you kind of win them over to um, to even trying to pick up a book? Children just want to be invited in. You know, when people talk about reluctant readers, it's just that, you know, I think the right book is out there waiting to be found by every reader. And I've, I've yet to meet young people. And I've, I visit lots of different types of schools. I've met yet to meet a young person who, when I say to them, promise you'll just try to read 10 pages of my book or of another book that I think might suit you, they say, okay, well, I'll give it a go. Because young people do want to, to give things a try, and I think the gatekeepers are the adults who assume that young people will not want this, that, or the other. I think what's great about the verse novel is it does appeal to reluctant readers because there's so much white space on the page. Um, it especially appeals to people perhaps who have um, dyslexia. And I, I have heard that, that children who have not been able to read a, a prose novel... Um, from beginning to end, have been able to finish verse novels. And so that's what I think is, is so great about them. And also just the the physical process of turning the pages. You're turning the pages much more quickly. You feel mm -hmm. a lot more successful. And that also mirrors things like Insta Story, where, you know, you're flicking and, you're, mm -hmm. you know, that it, it feels very familiar to them. And, I, and also the idea of children not wanting to read poetry, again, is the adults making that assumption because adults have had trauma where poetry is concerned you know, from their experiences at school and they just make assumptions about what teenagers feel. And I haven't found that to be the case when I have invited teenagers in. Mm -hmm. They say, OK, well, we'll give it a try. And if we don't like it, we won't continue. But they are prepared to try. It's librarians and teachers and parents. And I love all of those people. And I, mm -hmm. I'm a parent and I was a teacher. But it's fear, I think. And I, I had that fear myself, so I do understand it. You, did, you said something striking about poetry in particular. You said poetry is the one area where young people still feel that they have to understand it before they're allowed to have an emotional mm. reaction to it. Yeah. Um, I mean, that came out when we did this sort of think tanks with the young people when, before we began the Laureate Nanoke project, which is We Are the Poets, hashtag We Are the Poets, um, that almost every young person that we had around those tables said, well, it's not. It's nothing to do with us because we have to understand it and we're mm -hmm. examined on it. And if we don't understand it, we're told what it means. And if we have a different opinion to the teacher, it's not valid because it's not going to get us the marks on the exam. And there mm -hmm. is so little room in the curriculum here and in the UK for reading poetry for pleasure. And I think it's it's such a shame. You know, you don't get children being taken away from television at 13 or being taken away from the visual arts or from being taken away from dance. But poetry is this area where it's not you're not allowed to start from the heart. Mm -hmm. You start from understanding. And adults don't even do that. When mm -hmm. I listen to a piece of music, I decide whether or not it, I connect to it emotionally before I decide to have an intellectual engagement with it. I'll come out of the theatre, and if I love to play, I'll try and understand more about a play. If I didn't really love it, 
then I'll just walk away and mm-hmm. go to Nando's. <laughs> I've actually never been to Nando's. I'll go to Wagamama's. <laughs> You're missing out. <laughs> the chicken, isn't it? <laughs> One year in then, um, it's almost a, a year since you mm. uh, became Laureate Nanog, uh, so you're halfway through the term then. Yeah. Um, so what uh, do you feel um, you've achieved so far and what plans do you have for the year ahead? Gosh, I don't know if I'll know what I've achieved until the end. Um, I know that we have accessed lots of children who may not have had engagement with poetry, um, lots of different types of children. We were lucky enough to be able to go to a school in Mullingar where the children had um, special intellectual needs. Um, And what was lovely about that experience was that every child could experience poetry and some children were reciting Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star for the first time Mm -hmm. and were able to kind of verbally... Um, you know, verbalised the poetry in a way that they hadn't been able to before and some children were able to uh, create poems, their own poems and recite those. And so that, you know, the the project is We Are the Poets and it's about meeting children where they are. Like, what is your success point? And that's what's been lovely is just to be able to see that, that different people, um, you know, for me, I wake up and... I, you know, maybe filling the dishwasher is success for me today or maybe going to the moon is success for another person a different day. And it's the same with poetry, that it depends on where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm really excited that I'm getting to meet all these young people and we're working with other poets. Colm Keegan, for example, is working with young people on behalf of the project um, and doing a great job with them. So mm-hmm. it's nice as well to be able to collaborate with other authors. It's not me going around the country on my own. It's lots of other people being involved and that's really special too. Okay, lovely. Uh, Listen, thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. That's all for this podcast. Thanks to Sarah Crossan and to my producer, Declan Conlon. Thank you for listening and happy reading. (laughs) 